Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New York City-based jazz saxophonist, arranger, composer, and producer Ben Wendell. Born in Vancouver, Canada, raised in Los Angeles, and now calling New York his home, he is globetrotted with acts like Gerald Clayton, Eric Harlan, Snoop Dogg, and the artist formerly known as Prince. He has a large amount of irons in the fire these days as a very talented jazz force in the world. He spoke with Neon Jazz about his latest album called Act Two from a band that he's in called Act, along with much, much more. Please dig it, my friends. Hey, thank you for taking some time to talk with me. I appreciate it. Oh, uh, yeah, no problem. I'm just going to go ahead and dive in here and ask you, it's a simple question, but it's it's full of a lot of fun. What's been going on lately? Uh, what's been happening lately? Well, this year um, I've been releasing a uh, sort of an experimental video art project called The Seasons, which is basically a... I did 12 video duets with 12 musicians that I really admire. Uh, and I've been releasing one a month on YouTube. Uh, and guests have included uh, Joshua Redman, Mark Turner, Eric Harland, um, Taylor Ixey, Shine Maestro, Luciana Souza, uh, Julian Lodge. So that's been a project I've been doing this year. That was actually inspired by um, a set of 12 piano pieces that Tchaikovsky wrote in the 1800s. Cool. Uh, where where he released 12 pieces over 12 months through a magazine. So I, this was sort of like a an inspired uh, digital update of that of that idea. Right. So I've been doing that. Um, I have a band called Kneebody uh, that did a collaborative album with a wonderful electronic musician named Daedalus. And uh, that album is going to come out on the Brain Feeder label, uh, label uh, which is uh, the same label that uh, released Kamasi Washington's recent album and also folks like Flying Lotus and Austin Peralta. Um a lot of sideman work. Uh, I just played at the Village Vanguard with uh, Gerald Clayton's new quintet that featured his his normal working trio with Justin Brown and Joe Sanders, and then the, the great saxophonist Logan Richardson. Cool. Uh, and then um, when Seamus Blake is not free, I've been fortunate enough to do some touring with uh, Antonio Sanchez's quartet, his migration group. Uh, so I've been to japan with him and just played in mexico and san francisco uh i think that's it oh and then yeah and then i'll have uh my my next solo album is going to come out next year and it features a quartet with gerald clayton joe sanders and henry cole the drummer for um miguel's anon very cool so man you've got all kinds of irons in the fire yeah a lot of stuff going on uh Happily, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good problem to have. Um, one of the, one of the catalysts for me to speak with you is your second release from Act called Act Two, and I wanted to ask you yeah. about that release. That's kind of a uh, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of a jazz supergroup. Give me kind of an idea of how this band formed, um, kind of the evolution to your second album, and kind of the overall view of this band. Well, okay, so it's important to me 
to just reiterate for anybody, uh, we tried to make it clear in the press release too that this is definitely a co-led band. So this is not my band. This is a okay. that is shared between me and Nate and Harish. And um, we've been longtime friends. We've we've known each other back to the days um, where Nate was going to Cal Arts and Harish was at USC. Um, and uh, it kind of just happened, uh, you know, kind of in one of those natural organic ways. I think we did a, a gig or two years ago and noticed that uh, we had that that special rapport that happens every so often, you know, where you somehow just you, you musically get along and you don't really have to talk about anything. Yeah. But, you know, it, it does happen, but it doesn't happen that often. And to this day, I mean, essentially, it's the, that band is still like that. I don't think we have had one conversation where we've had to critically analyze or suggest anything musically to each other, which is a, a rare thing. So, so yeah, we just uh, we just really got along in that way. We loved the trio format, um, and so we made our first album. Nate's father is a is a world class engineer and has a beautiful studio down in Laguna, in California. And we we went down there for fun and recorded uh, our first album, just literally called Act, and released it on the Brooklyn Jazz Underground label. And um, that was just kind of for fun. I mean, kind of just like this one. It was you know, um, uh, but it was interesting to see that that album kind of made its way around the world. I, I still bump into people kind of all over the place. <laughs> Most recently, I think I bumped into someone in in Tokyo that 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 knew that album well. Cool. So it's kind of it kind of found its way out there and. Um, Luckily, uh, Rio from the Jazz Gallery, she has this uh, ongoing relationship with the Rockefeller Fund uh, and the the estate up in Poconitas. And she told me about this beautiful home where you can do like a a composer residency. And I said, well, can you do can you do a band residency? And she said, yeah, I think so. And I called up Nate and Harish. I said, hey, let you know, we've been talking about doing another album. You want to go up there and make an album. And uh, that's kind of how this got created. So let me let me go from this project, Modern Day, to the beginning of your life. You grew up in Vancouver, and you were raised in L.A. Talk to me a little bit about those contrasting environments and how they influence kind of the way you view music and jazz and all of that. Well, I would say culturally I'm I'm basically American. I was... I was born in Vancouver. My father's from Montreal, but I, I, not, I think I wasn't even one year old when they brought me down to L.A. Um, so I would say that the main influence on me has less to do with countries and more to do with um, my family. I have a lot of musicians in my family. My mom was a was a professional opera singer for almost 30 years. Uh, my grandmother played with Toscanini, my great aunt uh, went to Juilliard on piano. So actually, I'm I'm sort of the first person in my family to go the jazz route. Uh, but I have to but I have to say to this day, just like I mentioned with that seasons project, I'm still greatly influenced by 
what we call classical music and that aesthetic and that body of of work. What was it? So you're in New York City today, correct? Yeah, I've been living in uh, Brooklyn for nearly six years. Okay. So what what's what was the contrast when you moved to New York coming from LA? Was it a big culture shock? Did it invigorate a new level of creativity? A new jazz awakening? What was that migration for you like? That was a pretty big shift for me. Um, I was very fortunate to already have um, kind of on, ongoing work and bands that I was in. When I moved to New York, I was a member of Tigran Hamasian's group. I was touring regularly with him. Uh, I had Kneebody. I was already doing sideman work with other people. And a lot of, so a lot of my friends, they either chose LA or New York. So when I, when I got to New York, it, it fortunately wasn't that sort of intense, you know, start from zero sensation that happens to a lot of people. Um, but I, what I what I've noticed is, um, yeah, New York is is uh, I, I think it in a, in a beautiful way. It it, it um, there's just so much talent everywhere around you that it, it forces you to really sort of figure out who you are. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, it's sort of like there's a lot of peer pressure, but in a, in a good way, not a bad way. But it really forces you to sort of distill down kind of what you stand for and what you don't stand for and, and where you stand. And uh, L.A. is a little different that way. I, I think L.A. has um, equal amount of, of, of talent and creativity, but it's it's much more spread out. It's a much more isolated process. So it's a really great place if if you're someone who's self motivated and actually needs space that, that that doesn't want peer pressure. In fact, wants like solitude and a and a place to kind of develop your own thing. Uh, whereas New York's more of that pressure cooker kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, so that's I don't know that's that's the feeling that I felt, but it was a. Uh, so far, it's been a very positive, inspiring feeling, which is to enter a vibrant community that, for the most part, is very supportive um, of each other. Right on. So when you were a kid, did you always grow up wanting to be a musician, or was there any other aspirations? I think, basically, I always wanted, as far as I can remember, you know, I think I, think I started the sax when I was 10, and... And um, I think it was somewhere, yeah, in those early teens, I was playing in the orchestra, playing bassoon in the orchestra. I was playing sax and the wind ensemble and jazz band, and I just, I just loved that feeling of being literally in a ocean of people playing music. Yeah. And uh, I, I just remember thinking, God, this is just like, a, you know, my 12-year-old brain just thinking, this is crazy. This is amazing. <laughs> There's not quite anything like this. My mom, God bless her, was very supportive, but also, you know, having had been a, a freelance musician for most of her life, was was uh, a little concerned that that I didn't understand the lifestyle that I was entering, and she tried to get me to intern at a doctor's office and a lawyer's office and kind of see more of the world, but um, it was kind of too late. I, the bug hit, and. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I I think I think for most people that somehow miraculously make a living at music, it's it's 
it's it's a, a, a definitely some an obsessive obsession. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. they don't. You know, most people they don't they they don't question it. They can't imagine doing something else. Well, it's interesting with as many irons as you have in the fire, so to speak. You've gone on international tours with uh, you've been with Prince, Hoop Dog, Eric Harlan, Joe Clayton. What is it like to get around that kind of high level of you know national international acts? Seeing the world, what what's that whole experience like? I mean, it's it's um, it's a very u- unique experience. It's 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 a chance to see the world in a in a a very specific way. You, you know, you're 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 sort of an ambassador in a sense. You're you're going out to these different cities and countries, not as a tourist. Uh, but as sort of an, an arts visitor, so you're 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 treated a little differently, and you're shown things a little differently than than someone just visiting to to hang out on the beach. Um, but you know the the feeling I get touring with those kind of musicians is again there's just a, there's a camaraderie. You know you're part of a I, I don't know I don't know how to explain it. You're part of a band of uh, not gypsies, but you know, just <laughs> people that they, you you go out on the road to to see if you can um, keep pushing yourself and excel even more musically. And you're surrounded by these people that have that same attitude and that same energy and and uh, creativity, and it's it's just very inspiring. Yeah, you know, to see to see night after night people uh, trying to reach. You kind of raise the bar and we can reach their next level of excellence. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and along with the sax, you're a composer, a producer, and a conductor. And on a composer level, um, you received the ASCAP Jazz Composer Award, the 2008-2011 Chamber of Music, America New Works Grant. So you, you've had kind of a prolific existence in these different roles of being in music. What is it like to be a composer versus being a performer and a producer? Is there a, is there a, a mindset that you have to kind of enter into in each of those molds, or does it just come to you naturally in music brain world? Well, I, I think um, they 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 all to me they're 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 all d- different sides of the same experience. Or, or different different view viewpoints of the same experience. You know, compo- composing to me is 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 almost like Im- improvising in slow motion. It's it's like you you slow down the process to the point where you're going to write a song or a solo or a chord progression where you have literally the hours to do it exactly how you hear it, versus you know, playing live in a club and you only get one chance and who knows how much of it you actually got. So the composing thing to me is is a a very sort of internal um, kind of it's 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 a time to kind of go go away from the world and go into this kind of quiet meditative state where you get lost in in writing music. I, I've noticed that. I think this is the case for most people that compose. You, 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 you. As an experience, uh, if if you have a like a week of composing, you you actually do kind of feel physically detached from the world. 
<laughs> yeah. And it can it can take a second it can take a second to actually come back into it and be social and interact with friends. You you feel as though you've kind of lost those those skills of communication for a moment because it's such an internal uh process. Um so I don't know, that's composing to me is that it feels it, it really feels a lot like how how people describe meditation. Like time passes in a very different way and the sense of self kind of disappears. Uh and then I don't and then producing is just um that's something that I never initially intended to do, but it kind of came to me. I think I just I just it just was uh sort of I, I just happened to have those a sort of natural set of skills that 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 worked well with that kind of um occupation I guess. And yeah. um and I love it. You know, it's it's sort of like you get to be, you get to be sort of a, a, a grand architect slash therapist slash musical mirror slash commentator. I mean, it's, it's, you kind of have to do everything when yeah. you na- navigate someone through through the creation of an album, and it's really, it's it's uh, I, I love it, and it's it's really um, what I love about it most is the is is just the the psychology of it. And, and figuring out how how to get how to, how to either get get in there and 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 be part of a process where everybody feels like they're on the same page, or actually sometimes how to get out of the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, so yeah. I don't know. Somehow all of those things they they feel interconnected. You know, my experience yeah. as a producer tie into how I lead bands. Or how I put together a set list, or how I create a body of work, and and so on and so forth. Sure. So let's talk about this. You were appointed the head of the Jazz and Blues Initiative, that uh, will will allow you to produce and expand performance opportunities in LA. What what's that all about? That's actually something I'm just ending now. That was a really amazing seven year experience. I, there was a a performing arts center that was built in Santa Monica called the Broad Stage. And, um, you know, being raised in L.A., I've always wanted to create more opportunities for jazz in L.A., which it, which for such a large city, it's, it's a bit challenging. There's not a yeah. ton of venues or creative spaces. And so uh, I had this gig as a a producer of a series called Under the Radar, which essentially was booking any and all genres within this 120-seat black box theater within the center. And uh, in the later years of that job, uh, I was able to sort of expand that role and increase the opportunities for specifically jazz booking. I created sort of like a, a jazz council that had folks like Luciana Salza, Quincy Jones, Herb Albert, who, who all kind of like contributed their names and actually sometimes literally their creative forces to to help uh, bring in sort of like the next generations of talent within the field of jazz. So, but I'm just I'm just ending that. But it was uh, I'm really glad that that I got a chance to do that. And and actually, it, what's nice is now it's like really set up to continue um, 
being a sort of a, a destination place for jazz within the west side of LA. Um, they have a series now there called Quincy Jones Presents, which will be in the fourth season, and Quincy brings in all kinds of amazing talent. Like last year, I was I helped uh, bring in, for example, this this guy named jo- uh, Jacob Collier, who's this sort of YouTube the uh, jazz phenom uh, very hard to explain <laughs> you either know him or you don't right but uh but he he's he's been opening for you know Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea lately doing a solo show and and it was his first time to play in LA and he played at the theater so cool very cool um so on your own you're getting ready to release it said that you had a uh, your third solo album planned for 2015 your first one in 09 was Simple Song. Your second one in 2012 was Frame. Talk to me a little bit about your solo work. What inspires you to do it? When you find the time to do it? Kind of the etymology, so to speak, of these solo releases. I don't know. You know, everybody feels differently about this, especially given that the nature and concept of, quote-unquote, an album may be shifting, you know, as we yeah. move away from from literally physically holding an album. <laughs> you know, but but uh for me personally it's just um it's it's a way to sort of document uh points in my life and and see a progression and also there's something energetically about putting music down record recording it building recording it and putting it out there that helps you move on to the next thing um so so you know for me i you know the the goal is to over the course of my life is to have a vast and varied discography that's that's sort of a a little musical history of my life yeah that i can look back and go yeah i remember that time and and what i was thinking about and oh yeah yeah that's right before i moved to new york and oh yeah i remember i was really inspired by that and that's why i wrote that so uh, that's, I don't know, that's making albums for me. So this next album, which doesn't have a title yet, lately what's been on my mind a lot, which I think I've mentioned a lot in this conversation, it's just, I don't know, just this idea of community yeah. and um, being inspired by your peers and or your predecessors, being being part of this this continuum, you know, this this... To being being on this 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 path that's been created by people before you, so a lot of the songs are inspired by or written for uh, living and or musicians that have passed. Um, so I don't know. That's going to be the theme of the next album. Well, that's the good lead into my next question. Speaking of community and learning, who in your life has taught you the most about music? Well, I would say the person that comes to mind would be uh, Billy Higgins. I took a year off from school in 98. Uh, I was at the time I was having some some health issues. I was having something called, I was having lung collapses, which is, sounds very dramatic. It's not life threatening, but but it's pretty hard to play the sax when you have this and. Uh, yeah. I was a, kind of at a low point, and I actually kind of not sure if I was going to continue music. I felt very depressed, and um, uh, just by luck, through a friend of mine from high school, 
um, I ended up in a group called the World Stage All-Stars. The, wor- the, wor- the World Stage was a club run by Billy Higgins in Lamert Park in Los Angeles. And Billy was our mentor and teacher. And so for a whole year, Billy not only led this group, but I got to just hang and play with him for a whole year. I'd go over to his house. We'd play monk tunes. We'd play. I, I remember countless memories of going to the world stage late at night, and there weren't any musicians around, and there'd be Billy up on the stage with the bass player say, get, get your horn, and we'd just play tunes. And uh, something about... I, I knew I knew how I knew how heavy Billy was, but I was also young. I, did, I think I think I didn't really know the full scope of what it meant to play with him. But but when 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 you played with him, it was you you just knew that you were in the presence of something really deep. Yeah. It was very hard to play. Actually, it was basically impossible to play badly with him. He had some kind of aura and way of playing that the moment you got on that stage and played with him, you sounded your best. Yeah. You you just, you couldn't play badly. And so he brought to me through that year, he showed me the, the, like the joy, the just pure joy and light of music and this, and the, and the energy and the spirituality uh, of, of playing music with people and, and just how he was able to convey that to me. He basically, you know, I don't know. He And he never, like, that's the thing, like, he never, quote, unquote, ever sat me down and, gave, you know, gave me words of advice or anything. Just literally by being himself and allowing me to play with him, you know, he, I think he showed me the most. Wow. That's great. Um, seems like he was probably a pretty big architect of those early Ornette Coleman albums, I would think. I mean, yeah, and that kind of everything. I think still to this day is the most recorded jazz drummer of all time. Wow. Yeah. 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 When you stack that up next to Art and all those guys, that's, that's saying something for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let me ask you this. Was there a jazz album that kind of parted the curtain, so to speak, for you, um, or an artist that really was like, wow, it's, it floored you and made you either want to be better or to get into jazz? You know, that's such a hard one. I, I can tell you, I don't think there's any specific person. I can tell you that I have early memories of listening to uh, uh, this Charlie Mingus album called The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. Yeah. I have I have memories of that and, and some... Something about that album was just sounded so mysterious and powerful to me. It sounded it sounded like voodoo, and I remember just thinking like I remember thinking those these musicians sound like shamans or something. You know, it was like um, you know. So I remember that had effect on me. I, I had also a neighbor that was like a jazzophile. Um, and he was giving me early um, Charlie Parker albums, and uh, he also gave me, let me think about this, he also gave me, like, this tape that was just the best of John Coltrane. Wow. So it was just, like, 
this is kind of like excerpts from a lot of his albums. It, it had Giant Steps, it had Naima, it had Central Park West. I So I think, I don't know, in the early years, I think that's the stuff I was listening to that uh, was very powerful to me and, and really a mystery to me. Like I had no idea how that music functioned or, or or how they were able to do what they did. Yeah. It really seemed like magic. Yeah. So, but, you know, but since then, I mean, it's impossible to answer that question. You know, hundreds sure. of people that have inspired me, peers, you know, other, other record, you know, just on and on and on. Yeah. It just expa- yeah. expands out. Yeah. So let me ask you this. And I saw a graphic with Miles Davis some time ago, and it said it took him a long time to find his inner voice. And this is my question to you. With your inner voice, what are you trying to say with your music? Is there not necessarily a message, but what are you trying to admit to those that pick up your work and listen to it? I don't know. I guess, you know, uh, you know, the closest thing I can think of is just the, the feeling the feeling that I got kind of that I was describing, like playing with, with Billy Higgins, like, I, I guess I'm trying to, I'm trying to play in a way that, that creates a feeling. I mean, and I don't know that one can ever actually consciously do this, <laughs> but the feeling one has when you're playing in a space, and suddenly it seems as though everybody's alpha and beta waves are in sync, not just yeah. on the stage, but in the audience, that yeah. somehow through music, everyone is now on the on the same wavelength, which has actually been scientifically proven that that does happen. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, I've, I've, well, fortunately I've been in many concerts where I've had that feeling and, and, and there's, um, there's this sort of feeling that happens where you suddenly realize that the 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 collective energy of all those people in the room is greater than a singular energy. Yeah. And it's sort of like the 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 the, the bad view of an ego goes away. <laughs> and everybody everybody, you know, I don't know. I, I guess cliches exist for a reason. You know, it's just, you know, there's definitely a unifying power yeah. to 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 music. But I mean, I could never, you know, it's. I, I think I think for most people, what we learn through playing music is the moment you try to do something. That's when usually it doesn't work out. So I, I would say that I'm. And it seems like you're sensitive to that and even asking the question. So I don't I don't know that I'm trying to do anything sure. <laughs> except sure. except uh you know, except continue to just expand and grow as a human and hopefully transmit some of that to other people. You know, I've never been on stage as a musician, but I understand what you're talking about with that synergy and the first show that comes to my head where I felt that full kinetic vibe in the crowd was I saw Radiohead back in 04 in St. Louis and that crowd mm-hmm. was transfixed in that aura yeah. of York and those guys doing it and it was I mean and I was far enough back where I was just watching and I don't know that I'd ever been you know because when you go to big shows like that you tend to have 
pockets of things that are going on aside from the show, but everybody was enraptured with what was happening on that stage. And, um, it's very anyway, powerful. Yeah, that was kind of the Rockwellian picture that was getting painted in my brain when you talked about that. So, um, so Yeah, it's uh, very real. Yeah, totally. So speaking of that nostalgic route of, of shows and history, if you could go back and see a musician or a specific show in the annals of jazz and you had that jazz DeLorean at your disposal, where would you go? Oh, man, that's tough. I Well, I'll mention a few. There's so many. Uh, I would go... I would have loved to see any live performance by Django Reinhardt. Yeah. I would have yeah. loved to see that. Uh, I would have loved to be there for the Live at the Village Vanguard recordings that Train did, yeah. specifically his version of Chasing the Train, which I still, I don't know how many hundreds of times I've listened to that one track. Mm-hmm. Um what else? Like early Louis Armstrong or yeah. early Duke, like before, like before his big, before Duke's big bands, like his kind of smaller dictets and stuff. Just that yeah. era. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, yeah. You know, the Miles Davis Quintet live at the Plug Nickel. Yeah. Any of those, because there's just something about seeing music live and seeing. The people, the musicians interact. There's so much more information there that you that you feel and see that that they can kind of like transmute <laughs> information to you and understanding. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I I would have loved to seen see, see any of those. Oh yeah, those have been great shows. So let me ask you this: What's the greatest thing about waking up every day? <laughs> well. That's funny. You know, someone asked me a similar question. It was Josh Jackson from WBGO. Well, he's moved on now, but he said, uh, wh- how do you, what to you, what does it mean to be a musician? <laughs> and so for me, what is the greatest thing about waking up every day? Well, just that I'm, uh, I'm insanely fortunate and lucky to be able to pursue this path. Which which is just like, I still can't believe it, and I feel totally grateful. I mean, let alone that within within a safe industrialized country that I'm able to pursue this path. Let alone that I that I have a life where I'm where I can pursue this at all. Yeah, you know, I, I it's to me it's I can't believe it, and that and as a result, it's, it feels like a a great and heavy responsibility that I would be lucky enough to, you know, be able to pursue this path that I also need to pursue it as seriously and intensely as I possibly can, because there are so many that literally can't, you know? So, uh, so, you know, I basically, from the moment I wake up till I go to sleep, I'm thinking about music and, um, and creativity and, and and getting to know myself and other people better and better through through art. Very cool. So let me ask you this. If, if somebody was to leave one of your shows and they just heard your music and they could go and they could Google you, 
what what music would you want them to listen to further, or how would you describe yourself? And I almost in that kind of short brevity of a tweet, kind of who are you, and what music would you like someone to explore further to get to know you if they don't know who you are, other than maybe just one live show. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. <laughs> I would say. I mean, I would say I guess the most recent thing would be this Seasons Project, um, which I have like a dedicated page on my website where I've even written like little blog entries talking about each piece, and it even has an introduction talking about the the concept in general. I think that that really speaks to uh, who I am as a musician and and how I, I come from sort of a cross-genre, cross-generational upbringing. Uh, I think that, I, I think, I think that's where I would send people. Cool. Very cool. I think that right there is a good way to wrap everything up. Ben, thank you for cool. taking the time out. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Okay, I look forward to hearing the show. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over America, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Ben for his music, time, his vision, and devotion to the jazz craft. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or you can always visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.